Previously on Sometimes It Rains. My biggest contract. Now they're going to give me 300000 to go over there and play. Uh, and I was playing this over. Thriller death. But then what happened? When I tried to get a, a working visa to yeah. enter the country, yeah. I, I couldn't get one because I had a, a criminal record. You know, I even look at it today as kind of how we've seen meth and where we've tried to help people who are on meth. We did nothing for people who were on crack. But most meth users are not black. For the next three years, I played in Mexico and I smoked cocaine and played baseball. Won another championship in 1990. Those, those years are counting in, you know, are days. Talk, I guess talk a little bit about your life at, uh, like where you were in your life at that point. I retired after the, I think, 91 season. I became a recluse in my home. I just got up and smoked and, and drank all day. Didn't really have no life and didn't have no uh, relationship with my girls. They were like small, two and three. Basically just hung out with criminals, felons, people that was, was using drugs. No relationship with the baseball team, Kansas City Royals. Or I didn't go to the games. Or I didn't see any of my ex-teammates. Smoking cocaine and partying. So you continued to, to smoke. You were doing crack at this point. I like, I like to call it cocaine. I used to think I was, I would, would get the powder. And it doesn't really make a difference. I mean, it, drug is drug is drug. Crack or cocaine, I was, I was smoking whatever I could get, get, get my hand on, I guess. Right. Yeah. I only say that because it made it made a difference where the government was concerned. Yeah. So now we come to December 8th, 1993. A woman comes up to your house asking for directions. She just showed up at my house one day and felt like she was lost looking for a street. Said her name was Karen. Yeah, said her name was Karen. I take her to the street. Instead of her going to the street, she kept following me. And I pulled in at this gas station. And I'm like, hey, the street you're looking for is back there. And I'm like, do you have a boyfriend? She's like, sort of. Say, well, you want to get together sometime? Hang out? Why don't you give me your telephone number? She said, no, you give me yours, and I'll call you sometime. And that was the end of that conversation. Karen wasn't really lost. She didn't need directions. She didn't sort of have a boyfriend. And she wasn't interested in Willie, at least not like that. Mostly because Karen wasn't really Karen. Her real name was Ginger Locke. Ginger Locke was an undercover officer for the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department's Drug Enforcement Unit. I never realized who she was. Yeah. I think just that mentality that I had always had since I had been a professional baseball player, that nothing was going to happen to me. And people were telling me that, you know, Willie, they, they're watching you. <laughs> you got to be careful. I ignored all of that. Just the mentality that they can't get me. Yeah. I'm... Willie Akins. Welcome to episode five of Sometimes It Rains. We knew somebody on every team that was getting high. And everybody's doing cocaine. Baseball players have to go in front of a grand jury to say, yeah, I did cocaine. Can you blame me? It's a slow goddamn game. Come on, yeah. We're locking these people up. They're nonviolent. I had this incident that happened at my house with a couple of females. One of them ended up calling the cops. 
According to Ms. Locke's testimony, Willie's house was under surveillance because the police had received numerous complaints that there was suspected narcotics activity at Mr. Aiken's address. The specifics of what those complaints were and who made them was never really addressed in the trial, and Willie seems pretty sure the surveillance started after an incident in which one of the girls staying at his house called the cops and claimed Willie was holding her girlfriend hostage. So they came out to my house to check on that situation and they found out that the girl was okay, that she wanted to be there with me, so they just took off and left. But after that, they started watching me to see what kind of activity that, that was going on. After that phone call? Yeah. Now, I had been doing this for the, the past couple of, couple of years. You know, just sitting at home, wasting my money, minding my own business. So they watched my house for like two weeks and nothing was going on. So this is when they send the cop in. This was Miss Locke's first undercover assignment, and for this surveillance, she would be the log officer. That meant she simply took all the notes. Essentially, over the course of two days, December 7th and 8th, a team of five officers, each in their own unmarked car, observed a handful of situations where vehicles, including Willie's own car, would enter in and out of his garage. Sometimes the garage door would be closed, mostly it was kept open. On some of the occasions, Willie could be seen making transfers of something from his hand to another individual's. This is important to the team because they're looking for drug activity, deals. And if that's what you're looking for, it's easy to assume that's what was taking place. But that's where burden of proof comes in. Because without actually seeing the item in question, for all we know, they could have been trading baseball cards. And that's important because eventually this case would hinge on painting Willie as a high-level drug dealer, something Willie adamantly insists he never was. Now, according to Ms. Locke's testimony, a moment occurred where one of the vehicles left, and it was unclear whether the target, Willie, was in that vehicle. This is what prompted her to drive her car up to the house, say she was lost, and ask for directions. It was an attempt to determine if Willie was still there, which he was. Why the detective on her first assignment, who's been tasked with taking notes, suddenly becomes the officer to establish contact, the point person, is beyond me, but I assume these officers knew what they were doing. There's little disagreement on what happened next. Pretty much exactly as Willie described it. She asks for directions. He says he can show her, gets in his Geo Storm, no Mercedes anymore, drives ahead of her to 130th and Warnell, gets out, asks her if she has a man. She says, sort of. He gives her his number, tells her his name, and says he's in the book. For those of you youngsters listening, there used to be these things called phone books, and people just allowed their information to be published in these books, which arrived on your doorstep a couple of times a year. They were mostly useful for standing on to reach things on high shelves. And that was that. From that moment forward, the names Ginger Locke and Willie Mays Aikens would be irrevocably linked. But at this point, Willie had no idea. In fact, at this point, he was just waiting for a phone call from a girl named Karen. That phone call came a few days later. On that Monday, she called me back and, and she was like, sorry I didn't call you back, but I had to go to St. Louis and pick my car up. I said, what happened to your car? She said, one of my, my girlfriends was driving my car and it got confiscated because they found some, some drugs in it. And I'm like, uh, do you guys get high? And she said, yeah. And I'm like, well, I, I get high too. Yeah. Why don't, well, why don't we, get, we get together sometime? And she's like, well, I've been trying to find somebody that can give me some good cocaine. And I'm like, well, I know somebody that has all the cocaine that you want to get. I said, anytime you want some, just give me a buzz and I'll get you some. So I don't know how much time passed, but she called me up and said, can you, can you give me an eight ball? And I had just like purchased a quarter of an ounce, which is two eight balls. I said, well, why, why don't you stop by the house? At this point, Amber heard the conversation and warned Willie about making too many friends. 
He wasn't concerned. Karen arrived and was escorted by Amber into the den. She was clearly a little shocked by the cornucopia of drug paraphernalia adorning the room. Needles, pipes, and a chemistry set of beakers. Willie never used needles, but the girls did. Willie smiled at Karen, told her about all the baseball memorabilia that used to be on the walls before it was all stolen. He glanced at Amber. Karen didn't seem interested in baseball, so he pointed to the small bag of cocaine on the table. Karen pointed to the rocks sitting on the table next to the bag and said she wanted it that way. Now, clearly, Willie's life had taken a different path to this point than he would have imagined it would back in 1980, after his monumental World Series performance, poised to be a superstar. Clearly, he'd made some bad choices. But up to this moment, the damage could have been controlled. All the drug use, the possession, even the decision to sell cocaine to someone he would later find out was a cop. Even that. It would have led to jail time. But because of the mandatory minimum disparity between powder and crack cocaine, his sentence would have been a drop in the bucket if he had only said no when Karen said, I want it that way. He could have said, sorry, I can't help you with that. But Willie trusts. He just trusts. Always has. So Willie said, sure. As he cooked, he took a few hits and asked Karen if she wanted a hit. She said she was on her lunch break and probably shouldn't. Amber looked concerned by that. Karen handed him $200 and said she'd be back soon. Willie told her next time she should stay and smoke with them. And in that moment, Willie had become a dealer of crack cocaine. In no way a big time dealer, the kind of dealer they thought he was, but that didn't matter in the eyes of the law. So I guess a week, two weeks passed and she called me up again, hey, can I get a, a quarter ounce? And I'm like, well, I don't have any drugs. I have to take you over to the, the guy I know. So that happened another three times. And she, she was always very clear about saying, because you were getting her- Powder cocaine. Powder cocaine. And she was always clear about saying, I, I like it hard. I think, I think it's what she said. I want you to rock it up, yeah. And yeah. so you would cook it. And I would cook it because each time I cooked it, I didn't bring all the cocaine. See, you mix it with water and baking soda. You can cook it and some of the cocaine will come back, but if you don't cook it f f fully completed, some of it is like waste inside of the beaker. So I would just give her what would, would come back at first, the rocks. And when she leave, I add some, some fire to it and cook some more and the rest of the cocaine would come back. But I never knew there was a crack versus powder cocaine law. Right. right. I, I never knew that I, I was ignorant of the law. A lot of people were. But she knew. Entrapment. The dictionary defines it as the action of tricking someone into committing a crime in order to secure their prosecution. And if you didn't think this story was messy yet, this is where it gets messier. You see, there's an amount of crack you can sell that will trigger a maximum sentence. And Ginger Lock was aiming for that amount. Well, to be fair, the KCPD was aiming for that amount. And to be clear, it's not a lot. You know in the movies when they find the van filled with bricks of cocaine? That's not what we're talking about. Although it would take that much powder cocaine to get a similar sentence to what the KCPD was looking to nail Willie for. I am here right now with Doug Passan. Give us a little history of what you do. I knew that when I was going to law school that there was only one thing I really wanted to do and that was be a public defender. So I uh, th got through law school and um, got my first job at the Maricopa County Public Defender's Office here in Phoenix. And I've been a lawyer for 20 years. Most of that time, it's all been criminal defense, and most of that time has been as a public defender. 
So entrapment is you have no predisposition to commit a crime, that crime really at all. And, and the government has offered you inducement. They've basically pushed you into doing something you wouldn't otherwise do, which it sounds like it's a hard case to make with Willie because he's, you know, didn't, you know, he sold drugs, right? And he admits he sells drugs. Um, but then you have this issue of sentencing entrapment to say, okay, well, I got you there, but let's see how far I can push the sentence up, which is, you know, is, is Willie in the habit of cooking these drugs into crack for whoever? It's something he knows how to do. It's not something that's part of his, whatever, sales regime. So, so she's pushed him somewhere where he wouldn't have necessarily gone on his own. He wasn't selling crack, he was selling cocaine. But when this cop got through with him, he was a crack dealer, which means sentence goes through the roof. So you get an undercover officer who comes up to you and says, I need, you know, a, a little, little teener. Can you, can you help me out? And they sell them. Well, they've got them. Case closed. It's a bust. But they don't bust them. They say, thank you very much, and let them go on their way. Then they call them and say, I'd like some more. And they get another one. And then they say, God, you know, how much can you get? Because I'd like some more. And then they'll scrape together an even bigger quantity. And then when they figure out they've got, you know, on the sentencing guidelines, high enough of an offense, and they really got them, then they'll file the charge. On January 28, 1994, Amber had just confessed that she and her boyfriend were responsible for the stolen memorabilia from his house. She told him they'd sold it all and used the money to buy drugs. So Willie was already in a bad mood when, in the middle of all of this, Karen called and said she wanted an ounce, four times the amount of the previous buy. When she arrived, Willie met her outside. She smiled when she saw him. Willie took that as a good sign. He told her he didn't have the stuff, but if she had a grand, he could take her to his dealer and get her what she wanted. She agreed. Again, he cooked the coke for her, and again, she didn't smoke with him. Amber said, I'm telling you that bitch is a cop. Willie said, Amber, you're wrong. The next time Karen called, Willie again said they had to go meet his dealer near a body shop. But as soon as they got there, the dealer looked at Willie and said, I'm out. Willie asked what he meant. The dealer pointed across the street to the parked cars. That bitch is a cop, you dumbass. Look at her, he said. She ain't no crackhead. Willie walked back to the car. Karen asked why he drove them all this way if he didn't have any drugs. Willie simply said, drugs is a funny business. So there was, a, there was a girl that you were spending a lot of time with at the time named Amber, mm -hmm. who was there a lot of the times that the transactions were taking place, right? Mm -hmm. She told you after maybe the second or third transaction that she knew she was a cop. She, she, she had a feeling she was a cop. Mm -hmm. The next time you tried to buy, uh, your dealer said he wouldn't sell to you because he noticed cars across the street. Mm -hmm. He seemed to know she was a cop. Why do you think you didn't, you didn't see it? I never realized who she was. I think just that mentality that I had always had since I had been a, a professional baseball player, that nothing was going to happen to me, mm. that I was in, invincible, and I should have listened to him. I ignored all of that. Just the mentality that they can't get me. I'm Willie Akins. It was just a, a pattern in my life that when I got into trouble, I always got off. The fifth time Karen called, February 23rd, she also wanted an ounce. He told her he'd found a new dealer named Oz. He said it was better because he lived in Missouri so they didn't have to drive over to Kansas. 
She agreed that was better, but told him she was running behind, so she needed to get rock from Oz, no powder. I guess they had had a discussion about that. Hey, you need to, on the transaction, you need to get rock cocaine because he might can say we entrapped him to cook the powder to rock because we knew it carried a stiffer penalty. Willie got the ounce, but it was still in powder form and Karen was pissed. So she got upset because I brought her powder cocaine and she's like, you need, to, you need to take this back in and change it and get an ounce of, of rock cocaine. Yeah. And I tried to do it, but the guy, he wouldn't uh, change it for me. You cooked it for her again, yeah. but then at that point you told her not to come back and you hoped she wasn't a cop. The reason was once we got to this guy's house, there was a car sitting out on the side of the road. And I had, and I had seen that car before. And when we passed by that car leaving, the person tried to hide inside of the car. And I turned around and looked at her and I said, do you know who, who that is? And she's like, no, I don't know who it is. So when we get back to my, my townhouse, that same car is parked over on the side of the street. The same car. And I said, look, there's that same car over there. And she didn't say anything. So I got out of my car and I go and start walking towards the car to see who it is. And it takes off. So I go back and I'm, and I'm like, who are you? Are you the cops? And she said, no, Willie, I wouldn't do you like that. And I said, well, this is the last time I'm gonna do this for you. So I, I cooked it up, not knowing that, you know, it was something that they were gonna charge me with. I was just concerned about how much of this can I steal and, and smoke it later on. So this girl, Amber, a man claiming to be her boyfriend, called you on the phone, right? And started threatening you, saying he was gonna... Kill me. Kill you. He was her heroin or partner. Oh, okay. And he had, had just got out, out of prison. So after he told me that, I, uh, I contacted this friend, and well, a, a drug dealer. Instead of, of going to the store and buying a gun, I could have, because I wasn't a felon. Which would have given you a record of the transaction. And, and it would have blown my case wide open. Yeah. Because when she said I had the gun, I never had the gun. I only had that gun for like two days. I got it on a Friday, I had it Saturday, Sunday. They kicked my door in Monday and they find the gun, a 12-gauge shotgun. And that became very important because now they could say that you had... I had a weapon doing a, a drug transaction. So they charged me with use of a weapon during the commission of a crime. Which adds five years to your sentence. Exactly. They call that a 924C. Uh, and it's five years if you possess and it's seven years if you brandish, and it's 10 years if you discharge. What were you doing when the FBI kicked in the, kicked in the door? Doing what I, I always was doing. I was sitting there with uh, Amber and, and Smooth smoking cocaine. We had just come back, it was like six o'clock in the morning, and we had been up all night, and we had just come back from buying drugs. They were right there watching. So we, we go back in, we start smoking cocaine, and there's a big old bam at the door. Boom, boom, boom. And one of the girls said, it's a kick-in. And I'm like, what's a kick-in? <laughs> she said, it's the cops. I'm like, oh my God. So what, what was the feeling when that happened? Was there, once you knew, I mean, at that point you knew you were, you were busted, right? Yeah. I didn't, I didn't know I had, I had sold drugs to an undercover officer. Right. That's you just what, you just yeah. assumed they had found out you were doing drugs and. Then that's the first thing he uh, he said. He handcuffed me and he said, "Mr. Aiken, we got you this time." 
you sold drugs to an undercover officer. And I'm like, no, I didn't. You still, yeah. Yes, you did. And then they took me to jail. Willie was charged with four counts of distribution of cocaine base and one count of possession of a firearm during a drug transaction. From the beginning, your biggest point of contention was about the gun charge. And your first attorney wanted you to plead guilty, right? Said they would drop the gun charge, you'd get nine years, probably be out in six. What'd you tell him? That I wasn't guilty of the gun in the first place. And I'm like, how can I accept a plea of nine years? And the only thing I did was got, got drugs for this girl. They offered me five years at first, but they wanted me to, to cooperate with them. They wanted me to, to put on a wire, and they wanted me to go in and buy drugs from these drug dealers that I knew. And I told them I'm not going to do that, that it would put my life in, in jeopardy, and I, I wasn't going to do that. So two weeks before my trial, they offered me nine years, plead guilty to four counts of distribution of cocaine, and they were going to drop the gun charge. And I'm like, well, I'm not guilty of a gun anyway. I said, that doesn't even sound right, man. That's r ridiculous. So I fired him and hired a, a trial lawyer. I paid this guy 35 grand, and he was a negotiator. So I paid 15 grand more for this guy. Bruce Simon? Bruce Simon. Bruce Simon decided they should go to trial, and their defense would be primarily based on two things. The issue of entrapment, since Karen had to repeatedly convince Willie to convert the cocaine powder to crack, and the gun charge since there was never any mention of the gun in the reports Ginger Lock made after each transaction, which would support Willie's insistence that he had only purchased that gun two days prior to his arrest. I, I got a copy of the entire court case okay. and read all 350 pages of it. You did? Man. Um, When you call the Records Request Department of the Clerk's Office of the United States District Court for Western Missouri's 8th District, the same guy answers every time. Or at least, he did every time I called. I told him I would like to request the court transcripts for a case from about 20 years ago, and was that possible? He said, it should be. Do you have the case number? In hindsight, that probably would have been a smart thing to acquire before making the phone call. I explained to him I was kind of new at this sort of thing. He asked what the case was. I said, United States of America versus Willie Mays Aikens. Uh, let me see what I can find and call you back. He called back a few hours later and said he'd found the case. He said he could send it to me. All I had to do was pay for the copies. Surely it wasn't this easy. He said it was. As I was about to hang up the phone, the guy from the records department said, Hey, you know this guy was a baseball player, right? I said, yeah, I know. And hung up the phone. And at that moment, the weight of what I had said really hit me. United States of America versus Willie Mays Aikens. What must that have felt like for Willie to hear? The idea of something versus something else was an ingrained and deep part of Willie's life. Kansas City Royals versus Philadelphia Phillies. Puebla Black Angels versus Monterey Sultans. United States of America versus Willie Mays Aikens. The United States had declared itself against Willie. And just like in baseball, no matter how long it took, it intended to win. The trial began on Tuesday, August 16, 1994. Presiding over the trial was Judge Dean Whipple, whom President Reagan had appointed to the United States District Court for the Western District of Missouri in 1987. Christina Tabor, the prosecutor, called Ginger Locke to the stand first. How are you employed, Detective Locke? 
I'm employed by the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department. So what was it like when you saw Ginger Locke, ended up being her name, Karen? Yeah. When you saw her? I was shocked. And I, I, I finally figured, figured it out, that she was the one. About midway through Tabor's direct questioning of Ginger Locke, the first major discrepancy is reached between Locke's testimony and Willie's account. She asks about the January 28th transaction, beginning with Miss Tabor. Did you have any other conversation with him during that transaction? Ginger Locke responds, yes. I asked Mr. Akins if he was a hunter. Why did you do that? Because there was a shotgun leaning against the couch that Mr. Akins was sitting on. What did the gun look like to you? The first time I saw it, it looked like a rifle, a long type of gun. Did you know that it was a shotgun on that date? No, I'm not very good with guns, and I didn't know that it was a shotgun on that date. What occurred after you asked him if he was a hunter? He said no, that it was for protection. And it's remarkable. She, the, the section where they're asking her whether it was a shotgun or a rifle and she can't really tell. Exactly. Said, she said she doesn't really know guns very well. She said it was a, a rifle-like weapon sitting on the arm on my sofa. How are you not going to know what a rifle-like weapon is sitting on the arm on my sofa when you're sitting right there too? Yeah. How are you going to leave my house and I just had a rifle-like weapon sitting on the arm on my sofa and you forget about it to put it in your report? It's not going to happen to a, a police officer. That's going to be the first thing she tell her supervisor, hey, he had a gun today. So when, when we kick his door in, we got to be careful because he's got a gun. It was a straight up lie. She didn't put it in there because she never saw a gun. Overall, if you listen to Locke's testimony and also listen to Willie's description of events, there are some discrepancies. And there can be many reasons for the, in this case, literal, he said, she said. Both sides have very important reasons to defend their respective cases. Willie's recollection of the events is happening both in my interview with him and in Gregory Jordan's interviews in the book more than 20 years after the fact. But even then, the discrepancies are relatively minor, a phrase here or there different, who exactly was in the room during each transaction. But this, the issue of the gun, is a major discrepancy. Somebody is lying about the gun. According to Willie, he purchased the gun a couple of days before he was arrested on February 26th. Ginger Locke is testifying that they had a conversation about the gun on January 28th, a conversation Willie is adamant never happened. At this point, the court took a 15-minute recess before returning for Ginger Locke's cross-examination by defense attorney Bruce Simon. Bruce Simon to Ginger Locke. Would you look in your report, please? You have testified there was a weapon. Would you look in your report, please, dated 1-1894? Tell me, please, where the reference to a weapon is in that report. Miss Locke responds, It's not in the report, sir. It's omitted? I made a mistake. I did not ask if you made a mistake. I asked if you... Your Honor, I object. That's argumentative. Sustained. Bruce Simon again. My specific question to you was, Is there a reference in this report? No, sir. There is not. No, sir. Oh, by the way, do you know the difference, basically, between a rifle and a shotgun? Miss Locke responds, I am not very good with guns. I'm not a gun expert, sir. For the record, I've never fired a live weapon in my life. I'm somewhat embarrassingly naive when it comes to guns. And yet, if you placed a rifle and a shotgun in front of me right now, I'd know the difference. 
And yet, an undercover narcotics officer for the Kansas City Police Department, when asked if she could tell the difference between a rifle and a shotgun, answers, no, sir. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, what does it matter? He already had been caught dealing crack. He's already going to prison. Well, it mattered. It mattered a lot. Because possession of a weapon during a drug transaction carries its own mandatory minimum charge of five years, on top of whatever the other charges are. And Willie's right. It would have been perfectly legal to buy the gun in a store, which would have given him a receipt to prove when he bought the gun. But he was a drug addict. He wasn't thinking clearly at the time, under the best of circumstances, and his life had just been threatened by a drug dealer. So it's his word against hers. And maybe Willie's lying. Maybe the gun had been there the whole time. Personally, I don't think so. In the time I've known him, he really seems to be a pretty straight shooter. The man has spent years regretting his choices and repenting for them. He's harder on himself about his choices than most of the people who know him are. And he served the time for it anyway. If it had been there, what would be the point of continuing to lie about it? As for Ginger Locke, it's hard to accuse someone of lying without giving them a chance to defend themselves. Incidentally, we have exhaustively tried to get in touch with Miss Locke, but have had no success. I believe she was just doing her job. Hell, I believe she believes the gun was there the whole time. But as Bruce Simon pointed out, it oddly didn't appear in any of her previous reports. So apparently, the presence of the gun, something she herself said is vitally important information to the safety of the other officers when entering a premises, just kept slipping her mind. And if she had been wearing a recording device, we'd have a record of the conversation she claims they had about the gun. But she wasn't. So we don't. Venturing off of the gun conversation, Bruce Simon next asks Ginger Locke a series of questions pertaining to how she communicated with Willie about needing crack instead of powder cocaine. In reading this, I keep asking myself why the defense is so focused on whether Ginger and Willie were on the same page when she would refer to crack as stuff. Whether he knew definitively she meant crack, or whether it's possible he thought she meant cocaine in general. Then I realized, he was trying to establish a pattern of entrapment. Willie never sold her crack cocaine. He sold her powder and then cooked it for her after she told him she needed it hard, every time. And that became vitally important because of the sentencing disparity between crack cocaine and cocaine base, something that was still relatively new to the general public in 1994. I think of myself sitting on that jury, and if I think it carries a stiffer penalty, I'm probably gonna think, oh, what is it, 10 to one? I'm certainly not gonna think it's 100 to one. I bet they look, looked it up. Perhaps they did. I just, always, I just always wondered about that, and I was really struck with, with the fact that he seemed to be trying to find a way to get that information to them. He was. And see, if I'd have got up there and testified, I'd have said it. Regardless, if he would have allowed, allowed me to say it or not, I would have said it. And when he, and they, they could have objected to it after I had said it. Put the information's out there. Exactly. Willie thinks the jury probably looked it up. I'd love to believe that, but in order to, we have to look at where we were with mandatory minimum sentencing at that time and how readily available that information would have been. On the next episode of Sometimes It Rains. Is the criminal justice system just? I think there would have never been a case if I'd have been white. These organizations don't operate that way. It's, you know, again, this is not a cartoon where there's a guy in a leather chair somewhere that you can pin down. And if you can just get the right guy to flip on him, you know, that guy's in Juarez, that guy's in Cartagena, that guy's not anywhere within the U.S.'s jurisdiction. I was entrapped. I was entrapped to cook powder to crack cocaine because she knew it carried a stiff appeal. So what was the verdict? 
Sometimes It Rains is presented by Ad Astra Productions and is produced by Nick Schmitz and me, Matt Hostetler. Our original music is by the incomparable Gary Grundy. You can find more of his music at www.garygrundy.com. Executive producer, Mike Lucero. Our associate producer is Jordan Lucero. Our audio engineer is Quinn Cecil, and post-production support is provided by Outpost Worldwide. Special thanks for this episode to Doug Passant, January Lavoy, Kevin Thompson, and John Hamm. And a very special thanks to Willie Akins for sharing his time and story with us. Willie's book, Safe at Home, is by Gregory Jordan, and I can't recommend it enough. It's available wherever books are sold and also by contacting Willie directly at willieakins24.com or akinswillie24 at yahoo.com. His Twitter handle is at wakins and mine is at hostetlermatt. <laughs>